Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And this is No Limits, a Mitch Rap podcast. So how you doing today, Mike? I'm good. Memorial Day just passed. It was really nice to walk around the neighborhood, see a lot of flags out, a lot of bunting with the red, white, and blue, a lot of people out going on walks, front yard picnics. So, you know, folks doing what they can from home, even during these crazy times. So uh, happy Memorial Day to everybody. Uh, hope it was a peaceful, reflective one. And we thank our current and former service members for all that they give for us. Yes, definitely. We want to reach out and say thank you to all our current and former military uh, service members. And just want to say um, happy Memorial Day, everybody. We had a great Memorial Day up here in Ithaca. It's beautiful. Got the kids out, went for a nice walk. Yeah, you know, while these times are kind of crazy and this Memorial Day was a little bit subdued than in previous years and we we made the best of it and i think people out there did did the same so yeah speaking of veterans we met on twitter a really awesome small business owner sandy of the book dragon shop she's a veteran owned small business in staunton virginia they've been active on twitter trying to highlight a whole bunch of thriller writers you know large and small and so they ship and take orders over the phone. Sandy was super helpful. I called her up when I found out one of my, one of my close friends um, in the army, he never read Transfer of Power. And so I sent him a copy and Sandy was great over the phone, getting it shipped out to him uh, on base. And so if you want to support them, you can find the book Dragon Shop on Twitter at the book Dragons one. Really great, uh, small Nice. local business. Yep. I always love supporting a local bookshop. So, Yes, and they're shipping during these times, so uh, definitely give them a ring. We got another uh, email from a follower, Steve. You can find Steve at AmericanJedi42. <laughs> he wrote us a, a really nice email about uh, being, being jazzed for the podcast, and he, he reflected how Vince Flynn was very influential on his life and particularly helped him find his mojo as a writer and really get into his first couple of books and that Vince's death hit him really hard personally. He's looking forward to joining us on this, uh, this journey, listening to our book club style discussions all about Vince's work. Yeah, that was a, it was really nice reading that email. Um, and nice that we have some people out there who, you know, share our opinions and love these books just as much as we do probably more. So uh, what are we covering today, Chris, on the show? Right. So spoiler alert, this is our transfer of power episode. We are going to be going into detail. We're going to try not to spoil anything from the, the series as a whole, but you're warned, I guess. A lot of the characters we meet are going to play a big role in the rest of Mitch Rapp's life. So we're going to have to make some connections here and there. Yeah. Today, we're just going to be covering our basic plot summary. We're going to point out some of the scenes and, and areas that we liked, we disliked um, more in terms of like the, the plot and, and as we were reading along. And then in our next episode, we're going to sort of break down the, the book as a whole, some themes, some characters uh, in general. So it was going to be broken up into, into two parts and this is part one. I don't know how you read it, Chris. I have an old paperback that I referred to a little bit, but this was also my first attempt at an audiobook for nice. Vince Flynn. I've, I've never done them. I know you have done them. But yeah, the whole first time I read the series was via audiobook, and now I'm going back and I'm reading them. And I enjoyed it both ways. 
Okay. Yeah. This was my first time. I enjoyed it. It was, it was a pretty good recording. I, I got it from the Who library. Who was the, uh, the, the reader? It was Nick Sullivan. Uh, okay. Never heard of him before, but he, he was pretty great. Really well done on the accents, the tone of each character. Even though I've never done an audiobook for this series, the characters' voices were exactly what I expected them to be. It was to a T exactly how I envisioned each of the characters sounding as I read them. So it was kind of cool that that matched up. He did a pretty good job on that. The only one I felt a little iffy about was Kennedy. I feel like uh, Nick Sullivan, the reader, he was he made her a little too unsure of herself and not as confident, but um, still well done overall for my first audiobook here. Can't miss out with a George Goodell audiobook. I'll just you're you're in for a treat if you if you keep keep it up. Yeah, you know I was gonna pick one of his uh, down the road. I'll probably read the next couple. You know, either I have the paperback or the cover, but down the road I'm gonna do some of his. So tell us, Chris, about Goodreads. How did this book hold up? And um, can you give us a Goodreads summary? Our last book, Term Limits, uh, on Goodreads got a 4.31. And lo and behold, this book also got a 4.31, which is very interesting to me because I consider them, while both good, I I rank them completely different. And we're going to get into our rankings in the next, at the end of the, the next podcast. But I just really thought that was interesting that the fans sort of both thought uh, that these were, you know, pretty much equivalent. And, and maybe that, you know, sheds something on wh- how people rate Goodreads. You even mentioned that you rate Goodreads a little bit differently than an actual, like, review. So, yeah, and I, I found it interesting. So I have a Kindle version of this book. And in, in the beginning of the Kindle version, they have a bunch of these sort of one-liners from either, you know, different people in the media or different newspapers. And the Washington Times called it a Rambo perfectly suited for a war on terror. Mitch Rapp is is a modern day Rambo, I guess. I also like the Washington Post said Flynn has really done his homework on military and security matters, which I think is is very true, not only in this book but in the series as a whole. You know, these things are very well researched. Yeah, and on that note, we even get an epigraph warning in the very beginning about, and I have my copy right here about how out of respect for the United States Secret Service and the security of the president, certain facts regarding the layout of the White House and Secret Service tactics have either been changed or omitted. So again, it shows the level of research that went into this, but also balancing that with protecting our law enforcement and the Secret Service and the sec- and the tactics that they use and the layout of the White House as a building. So right. it was a good job by uh, Vince to bring that up in the beginning to let the reader know. What did you think about like when you open a book and you read that and you kind of just, I, I sort of got this both times I read it or, or listened to it the first time I, I got this little bit of a, I don't know, chill. Like this is so sensitive, you know, this is so going to be such an insider thing that they had to change certain aspects. I, I, I just really enjoyed, I don't know, reading that brought me a sense of enjoyment and anticipation in, in reading this novel. Oh yeah. I was all in when I heard that hundred percent. 100%. It's kind of very similar to like when you read something and it's like disclaimer warning, this may be, you know, sensitive material. Like the, Oh, you I want think, it more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it makes you want it more, right? And then right up in front of the text with the epigraph is the dedication. And this one is to Terrence and Kathleen Flynn, Vince's parents. So great way to dedicate, you know, your second book overall and the first one with your, with your main character. I thought that was really nice. And you can definitely sort of tell, you know, right off the bat that this was a sort of a step up from his first novel. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's get into a summary of the book. 
All right, so you know, before we start anything, I'm just going to read you the Goodreads summary and see if we generally agree with that. So on a busy Washington morning amid a shuffle of tourists and the brisk rush of the government officials, the stately calm of the White House is shattered in a hail of gunfire. A group of terrorists has descended on the executive mansion and gained access by means of a violent massacre that has left dozens of innocent bystanders murdered. Through the quick actions of the Secret Service, the president is evacuated to his underground bunker, but not before almost 100 hostages are taken. While the politicians and the military leaders argue over how to negotiate the terrorists, one man is sent in to break through the barrage of panic responses and political agendas surrounding the chaotic crisis. Mitch Rapp, the CIA's top counterterrorism counter operative, makes his way into the White House and soon discovers that the president is not as safe as Washington power elites had thought. Moving stealthily among the corridors and secret passageways of the White House, stepping terrifyingly close to the enemy, Rapp scrambles to save the hostages before the terrorists can extract the president from the safety of his bunker. In a race against time, Rapp makes a chilling discovery that could rock Washington to its core. Someone within his own government is maneuvering in hopes that a rescue attempt will fail. All right. That gets the essence of it. Yeah, pretty much. I, would, I agree with that. Can we talk about the raps here? Like, come on, this is this is it. The the guy we've been waiting for. We're a Mitch Rap podcast. We we deliberately wanted his name in our name. And so here he is. And I, I mean we get a really good description right off the bat in chapter one. And the first description we get of rap is the decrepit old man mumbled to himself in Farsi, the native language as he went. Like so many things in life, appearances could be deceiving. Underneath the ragged turban and jalaba was 190 pounds of solid, lean muscle. Mitch Rapp, a 31-year-old American, hadn't showered in a week. His deeply bronze skin was covered with a film of dirt, and his black hair and beard were spotted with streaks of gray dye that made him look twice his age. We know that skin's so important because... Uh, Vince wanted a character that can blend in in the Middle right. East, really take on and look like a, a local, and he pulls that off already in disguise right there. Yeah. I mean, he even got this limp so that people just look at him as this old man, not threat at all, and he's, and he's a beggar in the streets collecting garbage. And he's been doing that, I think it said, for a couple of weeks to try to just blend in and be seen as the random old man on the streets of uh, right. a small town in, in southern Iran. Yeah, I really enjoyed these these first couple of chapters. And when you first read that sentence where this discrepant old man and it, it clicked back to me like, oh, this is Mitch Rapp. This is the first time we're meeting him. How easy it is for him to adapt to situations and, you know, make himself appear to be something that he's not. It's very similar to what we saw in like the last book where our blonde haired assassin, Scott mm -hmm. Coleman, could, could do something very similar. And so like you could tell like this guy is, he's highly trained. He's, he's very special. And I love like whenever we get these little blurbs, you know, like in the Goodreads thing where uh, we get the CIA's top counterterrorism operative. I just love that, you know, description. And if we back up a little, the first character introduced was Irene Kennedy. So we see her headed to the White House on a foggy morning. President Hayes is in the Situation Room and Dr. Kennedy, along with Stansfield, begin the briefing that they have an operation ready to go. They need the green light to kidnap a top Hezbollah religious leader, Farah Harut. It's the first time they have almost 100% certainty of where he is 
and the opportunity to get him. And so what do you think? We meet President Hayes during this exchange. What's your first impression on him as he's, as he's getting the, this rundown from the intelligence community? First of all, I really liked how we were thrown like right into the, the action. It just starts with, boom, we have this meeting in the Situation Room. What's going on? We have a man on the ground. Who is he? Mitch Rabb, right? Um, Hayes, I, I liked Hayes. And I think by the end, you know, the reader probably grow, can, can grow to appreciate who he is. He's you know, very calculating, like obviously most politicians are, but he doesn't want to appear weak. He, he, doesn't want to, he wants to get rid of these terrorists. They have an opportunity to, to capture this guy. He has ties to other terrorists. So let's do it. And you know, coming off term limits, where it was very clear that President Stevens, as we talked about on the show, was set up to be a bumbling coward, an aloof politician and individual. President Hayes here is a little stronger. Here's, here's a description in that meeting of President Hayes. President Hayes listened to the general intently and tried to be objective. Hayes was a student of history and knew to never use force was foolish. If he did not act tonight, it might someday cost the lives of Americans. Terrorism had to be confronted. He could not pass on the decision. The secondary villains are the politicians and the corruption in Washington. Definitely. But here we're being given the same party, but with a very strong leader who is decisive and willing to trust and rely upon the intelligence community. I feel like Vince is breaking out of some categories that if you wrongfully read through the present day American lens, this text, which was published pre 9-11, right? Vince is showing us things are a lot more complex where later on we're going to see the Democratic National Chair, uh, the DNC Piper, is part of the reason they subvert Secret Service protocols. They let the terrorist into the White House. They completely ignore everything that Jack Warch uh, was was setting up as the as the director of the Presidential Security. And now the president is saying, "No, trust these guys. I trust our operatives. I trust our intelligence folks. I'm going to take the briefing seriously." And that is nothing like we saw with President Stevens just one book ago. Right. I thought that it was interesting that he, de- I feel like he deliberately chose to put him as a democratic president here. And that was a, because in, we, unlike in term limits where we, it's never stated who, what political affiliation president Stevens is, you know, we start off the bat, boom, democratic president. And it was very calculated, determined to sort of just to address the points that you just said. It would be interesting in the future to sort of rank, because we do get a couple different presidents throughout the series to sort of, see how the transfer of power um which presidents we like which presidents we don't like in this in this fictional universe that's a good point and while we're on the politics kyle mills talked about this quite a bit of wanting to wanting to honor what vince did by exposing the corruption of washington exacerbating so many of these the stories of, of the plot advancing yet he also didn't want to kind of make an analog to today's political climate and just say, this party's this way, this party's this way. This individual represents this person. This bumbling fool represents, you know, this bumbling <laughs> fool in current day politics. He wanted to stay away from that. And um, rightfully so, he wanted to balance it, but he still felt he needed to include it because Vince did as such an important part of his stories. And we see Vince here being very delicate in how he balances it by having such a strong leader as president in the same party as someone like Piper, who is this fool who lets the terrorist into the, 
West Wing. Or in the same party as his vice president. And, and his vice president, and Baxter, exactly. So he's not, he's not condemning one whole party through the story because he is pointing out an individual who rises above that. I, I want to just draw your point also to something that we get sort of right away, which because we're reading these in not the chronological order, but in the publication order, we get first this notion of the Orion team and how Kennedy, while she is the you know, counterterrorism uh, boss at the CIA, she, her secondary role is in charge of the Orion team. And so this is something that is obviously established in American assassin and, and fleshed out in, in the kill shot. And, and we'll go more into depth in that later, but I, it, it's obviously brought here quickly. And then also very in, in a paragraph, we're sort of shown how Kennedy was able to influence rap to come to the CIA or not even this, you know, in the beginning, he wasn't even officially a part of it, right. To recruit him because of this tragic event that, that killed his high school sweetheart. Right. Which is, you know, a real event, right. The Pan Am, terrorist attack on the Pan Am flight uh, over Lockerbie, Scotland. What, what did you think of sort of addressing that right away? And I th Yeah, I think it's really cool, especially as a lot of readers are going to start with American Assassin, that when they read Transfer of Power, they could write this part off and just say, oh, I already know this about rap. I already know his backstory. How many years later, right, did American Assassin come out that these nuggets were left for us this early on in... Right in 1999 and those would later become such major plot points that are the entryway into most readers getting to know Mitch Rapp. Even before we move to the White House and the main story gets going, we do see Rapp in action on the beach with a team of SEALs. They rendezvous with Rapp. They have a great little conversation as they hide their equipment and get changed uh, so they could look like locals. And we learn that it's Harris, it's Wicker, the, the sniper, and all the boys, and they are about to raid this complex where Farah Harut is. And thankfully, Kennedy's intelligence briefing got the president to give the approval. He took decisive action, and we see the team invade this complex. Pretty cool scene. What did you think of seeing Rap in action for the first time? I really enjoyed it. I like the character of Harris, how he is, you know, the leader, but he's not afraid. He doesn't, you know, sit back at Little Creek. He actually goes in with his guys. Yeah, in the scene where, you know, almost the the plane almost gets botched, right? With well, when the sniper has to take out one of the men, essentially alerting that everybody's there, but the helicopters are able to take them away. I love the action that that Flynn brings to all all of these, you know, military scenes. Uh, and again, they're, they're very well researched. Yeah. It's, it's also the sniper uh, wicker needing to step in and take out a couple of guys because everyone's alerted is, is probably real life where this high level terrorist commander is hiding out in the city in Iran. He's going to be protected. Right. So all the neighbors come out with their AK 47s. They're on high alert, even though it's the middle of the night, they know this building has somebody special and the community is going to protect it. But um, our heroes win out. They hold off on the roof. They execute perfectly their mission. I think at one point, one of the SEALs goes over the parapet, fires as a distraction. Someone else at the other end of the building picks a few of them off, and, and the choppers make it just in time to extract the whole team. So more casualties than hoped for, but successful mission nonetheless. So after we capture Harut, we switch to – he gets dumped off at – Dr. Jane Horning, who actually will be, you know, she's a 
very small part, but she comes up frequently throughout the series. And we jump to the White House where, you know, President Hayes has his meeting with the DNC chairman, Russ Piper, and a very last minute guest, this Prince Khalib of Oman, who was intentionally, you know, left off of the Secret Service's meeting register by, I believe, the the President's chief of staff, right? And this this guest, this Prince Khalib, is actually the terrorist, Rafiq Aziz. Because Dr. Horning was able to get some information, Mitch Rapp is able to warn the Secret Service of this threat and get a hold of the agent Jack Warch in charge. And right, sort of right as the Aziz is about to like sort of do his attack, you have the Secret Service agents rush in. And I thought that scene was cool where the Secret Service agents rushing in and, and ushering him off to to the bunker. But then what, what happens is the terrorists end up taking the White House in this huge, flawlessly executed multi-pronged attack. And they wire explosives to the outdoor exterior doors and windows, and you know they, they take all the hostages. What, what did you think of both about the, the White House's or the Secret Service's response, as well as the, the meticulous planning of Aziz and the terrorists? It really caught my attention when Warch got this information. Uh, from Dr. Hornig, who was interrogating uh, Farah Harut. And so Jack Warch, I just thought the weight of that decision, it doesn't seem like the biggest one. You know, it's not in the situation room. It's not a decision with heads of state. It's not a decision about nuclear weapons. It's simply Jack Warch, do I interrupt this meeting or not? And being able to rely on his training, rely on his instincts and say, we're crashing the, we're crashing the Oval Office saves the president because he was moments away from Rafiq Aziz making his move. And that was, that was the goal. Aziz did want to get the president in the Oval Office, but thanks to Jack Warsh crashing in, activating protocols, they're able to successfully remove the president, get him to this newly completed bunker. So I, th- I just thought that decision process by Warsh was a really cool scene that was written really well. We finally see, or actually during the evacuation to the bunker, we see the attack and this has been a long time coming. The terrorists have been planning this meticulously. We even hear of uh, one of the guys who is the driver for the White Knight Linen Service. I think it says over six months. Yeah, yeah. Or at least a few months. So he's ingratiated himself. And part of his mission was to pretend to be one of the boys and get chummy with the guards. And so all the guards knew him as their driver. He even at one point offers them baseball tickets, I think, to go see a game. Hey, how would you and your son like to go to a game? I got extra tickets. And the Secret Service agents, the uniform division, let their, let their guard down. And they let the truck in without any sort of extra search, thinking, we know this guy. But they were being played. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll learn throughout uh, this, this, uh, the book and, and maybe through our discussion about all the steps that Aziz took in order to have this go off perfectly. And the things, different things that he studied in terms of negotiation, in terms of what sort of responses the Americans would have. And this is kind of scary, you know, the fact that something, yeah, you know, I, I don't know if something like this would, would ever happen, but, you know, I would hope that no one would would allow someone to get chummy and, and let your guard down. But I'm, I, that just exposes everyone's inherent weakness. Like that is most people's weakness. You know, if you if you let your guard down, something could happen. And so we are at the Pentagon through the transfer of power of the 25th Amendment and without knowing if the actual president is safe or under duress, 
the cabinet top executive officials activate the 25th amendment and Baxter is commander in chief along with a number of other people. We meet Dallas King, the vice president's chief of staff and attorney general Tutwiler are all at the Pentagon deciding what, what to do and what the next steps are. Now that Aziz has made his demands demanding they unfreeze what was it? A couple of billion, $14.7 billion in frozen assets to go to Iran. And if they don't get that, they're not going to release the prisoners or the hostages held at the White House. Well, Rap's in this meeting, or Mitch Cruz is in this meeting. How does Mitch handle the decision-making process that Baxter is contemplating? Right, and I, I like I like his uh, alias. It's not alias. A... <laughs> We get our Mitch Cruz in the situation where, you know, he's sort of laying low, letting them all talk, talk, talk. Flynn has these secondary characters that are politicians that are also bad guys by berating Secret Service Director Tracy and essentially, you know, blaming him for this entire thing. Although Tracy actually doesn't take it and, and walks out, but you can just see how Baxter doesn't want to, he needs to find a scapegoat immediately, right? And then they have Tutwiler, who starts to propose, oh, let's only give in to a part of their their plans, you know, and let's 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 do it this way. And you begin to see how these these politicians are, you know, lobbying for for power, and they want to do it their way. And, and Mitch goes nuts, right? He knows that anything that they do, even if you do fully, uh, oh, you know succumb to all of his demands, he's never going to accept any deal, right? And I think it's in this meeting that we begin to see this idea of jurisdictional divides. It's one of, one of the themes that we're, we're going to talk about and how you have these politicians that they just want to save face. You have the FBI who immediately, they just want to storm in and, and get the hostages. You have the, the Secret Service, their main thing is we want to protect the president. That's it. Military, they're thinking, let's, we need to save all Americans you know, let's let they they're sort of willing to risk like the the few for the many, right? And then you have Mitch Rapp, who he's going to get in there, right? And I really like this divide that that Flynn starts to play between the intelligence communities and the politicians, specifically Baxter and and his chief of staff, who we end up finding is actually helped the terrorists get into the the White House in the first place. Yeah, and, and in this meeting. We kind of get this description of Stansfield and why he brought rap because Stansfield knows he nor Kennedy is going to be the one to stand up and start bickering. And so raps listening to the attorney generals, you know, kind of stuck up, say, I'm an academic. I wrote books about hostage negotiations. I know how these go down. And meanwhile, we're inside Aziz's brain and Aziz has masterminded this to play people like Tutwiler. Aziz knows the American's game plan. He knows every hostage situation in the past and how it ended up and how American politicians handled it. He knew how the FBI handles it. He knew exactly what HRT and the hostage rescue team was planning. Aziz is way smarter than anybody, yet here's Tutwiler and the chief of staff for the vice president, and they're all acting like they're in control of the situation without knowing anything. And meanwhile, the only one who would know something, Director Tracy of the Secret Service, is being scapegoated and being blamed. 
Meanwhile, he's saying that Vice President Baxter campaigned on cutting Secret Service spending, not allowing them to expand a perimeter around the White House, which he suggested. And still, he's the one technically forced out of this meeting, and Tutwiler's getting to run the show. Well, well, Rap can't take it anymore, and he's boiling. There's this nice exchange. Tutwiler looks at him and goes, what's wrong with you, Mr. Cruz, or whoever you are? And Cruz is like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What are you saying? And she said it again, and he was just looking over at Stansfield like, can I go? Can I go? Stansfield kind of didn't say anything, and Rap goes off saying, you don't know this man. I've hunted him. You don't know how they work. They know every step of what you're planning. They know you better than yourself. And by giving in or jerking their chain, you're just going to make this 10 times worse. Because when Rafiq Aziz demands something, he means it. And he probably means 10 times worse than what he's letting on. And here's Tutwiler thinking she's in control of the situation simply because she wrote papers about hostage negotiations. Right. And in, in the end, what she does in only releasing a part of the funds, and actually she wants to be the one who talks to him as, as a woman, that sends him over the edge, what causes him to, on live camera, assassinate the national security advisor and his assistant. You know, so she just, by not listening, you know, escalates the entire situation. Yep. And I think it's Rapp and Kennedy are trying to say, there's no way you can put a woman on the phone with Aziz to negotiate. He'll see that as a disgrace. He'll see that as a weakness, especially a Western woman. And Tutwiler just thinks, you know, thinking about her own values. I'm a strong person. I'm a confident person. I'm prepared for this. The CIA is trying to tell her, you don't know what you're up against. You don't have experience with this part of the world and the terrorist mindset. Right. So, so Rapp leaves the meeting. He's actually escorted out. And he's taken to General Flood's office, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And here he is wondering, is he going to get a slap on the wrist? Is he going to get any sort of consequences? And Stansfield comes in. And Rapp is trying to figure out, am I in hot water? There's this great quote. Trying to gauge Stansfield was like trying to read the expression on the Sphinx. The longer you observed, the more you thought you saw. But in reality, you saw nothing. In the case of the Sphinx, it was because there was nothing. But in the case of St Thomas Stansfield, there was a lot. For me, that might be one of Vince's best lines. I, that, that, that's phenomenal writing. You really, you really know exactly who Stansfield is. This great spy master playing chess in his mind. He's kind of like a, you know, like a, to go back to Le Carre novels, if you ever read any uh, Le Carre it's like that George Smiley character, this just seasoned veteran spy master who you cannot get a read on and is always right. in control. Or in the, the, Brad, the Brad Thor novels with the, the old man. And what's interesting, right, is if you read these in chronological order, you, you learn a lot more about Stansfield from the first two books. But if you don't, you sort of get these, these tidbits about who he is and I really like the character of Thomas Stansfield. Uh, I think he, he plays this awesome role as this old timey spy master from the wild Bill Donovan days yes. of, of the CIA. Like, that would be a cool, you know, the CIA has changed greatly and the descriptions that they describe from back in the day. And, and actually even like watching Homeland, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of Homeland. You know, the, the character of Saul in there reminds me a lot of yes. Thomas Stansfield, not as old, but still like from that era he was put over in Russia behind the Iron Curtain type person. I, I really, that what's one of the characteristics I really like about Stom Stansfield. Great comparison. But here's a question for you, Chris. If you were with Rap 
and you and Rap walked into a bar, or, or you and Rap walked into the, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs office. What are you drinking? I'm drinking Booker's bourbon. Let me tell you, that's Rap's drink of choice. I love it. It's pretty tasty. I've never had it. Never had it. I, I took a tour of the Jim Beam, so. Oh, nice. So this is their small small batch cask bourbon, I heard. Yeah. It'll be up to $100 a bottle, pretty limited edition. Although I also like what um, what Flood's drinking. Uh, what is it, McAllen 25? That's pretty good. Yeah. I just don't remember that nugget. I always wondered. It's like, if Mitch Rapp were drinking at a bar with me, what would he have? And it's like, boom, you get the answer right there. <laughs> After we have, you know, the catastrophe that happens with the Attorney General, we get to meet one of the characters I really enjoy in this book, and, and that's Milt Adams. So the plan is to now have Mitch and Rap, Mitch and Milt, sorry. The plan is to now have, you're going to have a lot of editing to do. <laughs> Dr. Kennedy and, and Director Stansfield, their idea is to have both Mitch and Milt team up in order to insert into the White House through the ventilation ducts in order to be the man on the inside, gather more information. Me, all the while, the vice president on the outside is deliberately trying to save face. He really doesn't want the hostage rescue to take place because he's worried about his image. And we also find out that Dallas King is leaking information to the Post through his you know, sexual pleasures with, with a reporter. And that this is, he's doing this in order to save what the vice president look like, looks like. Yeah, what what a scumbag. I mean, he's going to a reporter to leak that the failed negotiation attempt was not on Baxter. He's blaming, you know, Tutwiler, uh, you know, she wanted to do this. It wasn't the vice president. And just why is it about saving face? You have 100 hostages, a terrorist about to break into the president's bunker and here's Dallas King trying to work Washington and try to be a playboy and show everyone that he's, he and vice president Baxter are really in control. What a scumbag. But I mean, opposite of that is Milt Adams. Right. Just, you mentioned him. This guy is awesome. Rap pulls up to his house in Northeast Washington. There he is with his big, scary barking dog. I think German shepherd maybe. Uh, yeah. But uh, he's a former Marine. He's a pretty, Pretty trimmed down guy, but still badass. Um, carries can, a badass nature. Can drop down and give you 25, rattle them off real quick. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And what we learn is he's not only a, a, a tough guy, he also is pretty smart. As an engineer, he's collected blueprints on the White House, and he's one of the top experts on the grounds and the engineering and architecture of the building. And so Rap is going to lean very heavily on him. I should say Cruz at this point because he doesn't even tell Milt Adams who he works for. And Milt Adams is like, cut the crap. Who are you and who do you work for? Sensing he's, he's some sort of uh, special operator. And um, eventually he says, how can I help you? And Milt wants to help and do whatever it takes and even risk himself. And Rap agrees. I'm going to need somebody who knows the layout of the building. I'm going to need somebody who knows every nook and cranny, every, air duct and ventilator shaft and um milt signs up right away says take me with you i know i'm old but i could do this right it's also during this time that we get a quote that i found really interesting that, that i shared with you and it's it's so baxter seems to despise the fact that he was put in this situation and that worried thomas stansfield 
He says, great leaders rose to the occasion. They almost thrived when they were confronted with a crisis, but this man seemed to shrink from it. And that just really shows, you know, how awful Baxter is and how slimy and scumbaggy of a vice president he is. Yep. I kind of feel like if you didn't have President Stevens from Term Limits, Baxter and Stevens are pretty much the same character. Like oh, could definitely. Have been either definitely. one of them in either book. Could have re- you could have swapped the two and we got the same exact story. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the good thing is that the FBI's hostage rescue team is fully prepared to invade and be the on the ground inside the White House people to free the hostages. You've got SEAL Team 6 willing to seal off the country that if anybody does get out, they can pursue them internationally. And what did it say? Delta Forces. I forget the Army Ranger Delta Force, what they said their role was. With the be. air. They're good with the air. airdrops. Yep, that's it. And so I just think it's pretty cool. You talk about the different jurisdictions before, how we see these three branches coordinating uh, their response. Right. I also like the descriptions that Flynn gives of each of them and sort of their training, their background, where they're coming from. This was information that I I never knew before, you know, reading this. I I wasn't huge into, you know, military history. So, you know, really wanted to know more about this kind of stuff. It's also during this time that we get to meet a character that stays with us throughout the entire series. One of my favorite characters to the series, Marcus Dumont. And I love the story that Flynn puts out every, you know, because these books, you can read them whenever. He puts the story about who Marcus is, just a little tidbit. I love that this guy was so smart. The only reason the CIA caught him was because he got drunk and blabbed about stealing so much money that no one caught him. Like, that's great. Because he was drunk, he got caught. And now the CIA uses him because he's, you know, this tech genius. Well, that's, you got to think of like a Stansfield, someone who is that old timey spy. They're going to want people like that. They're going to want the smartest people. They they pick up on that. I mean, look at how Kennedy picked up on rap. He wasn't anybody, but she was looking for someone to join Orion team who wanted revenge. She knew it had to be personal. Where usually I'd imagine you go right to the special forces guys you find someone who is kind of thinking about moving on, leaving that, and then you recruit them. In. But no, they're they're smart enough to know to go for these raw, kind of on the fringe type of people, whether it's rap with revenge or Marcus Demond with his intelligence. And those are the ones who are going to be your special assets. Marcus Demond provides them technology, a number of cameras and recording equipment that they are going to try to place strategically throughout the building and relying on Milt Adams' expertise, Adams shows them on the South Lawn, hidden not far from the fence, there's a, an exit shaft for a boiler room that was put in, I believe, in the Reagan years, if I'm not mistaken, and it was just big enough to fit a person the size of Rap. And so they basically set up station on the South Lawn, hidden a little bit out of view of the terrorist hanging on the rooftop of the White House. Milt Adams shows him where this bush is, and there it is. He picks up the bush, and they can insert clandestinely into this uh, air duct shaft, which will go into the third basement boiler room of the White House. I don't know about you, but between the treasury tunnel that the terrorist blew and this air duct going to a boiler room, do you think there's any chance of a real analog to that or a real example of something similar that that could you could use to breach the white house or is this just where it's all fantasy if you think back to that 
you know, short little paragraph in the beginning of the book. I, I think maybe there are things like that that exist, but they're definitely not that shrub in that location or under near the treasury building. That that that's something that is if it does exist, it's been changed. Yeah. Yeah. I, the the idea of having this little air vent that is is accessible that kind of seems a little far fetched to me. The, the tunnel I I could see existing somewhere. You know, they always talk about you know presidents in the past who brought people in through secret tunnels maybe jfk brought someone in through a secret tunnel um <laughs> someone whose initials are mm yeah. yeah well rap here's another little secret nook and cranny in the the president's bedroom in a walk-in closet there seems to be this little room off the closet and that's where milt and rap are hunkering down but right before they they conceal themselves in this this hidden closet they place one security camera and so they hear a terrorist coming up the stairs heavy footsteps and they just in time get inside the hidden the hidden closet area and watch the feed on the camera and what it turns out is one of the hostages a very attractive young journalist Anna really she's taken up to the president's bedroom and in a very intense scene he jumps out and right before she um, is attacked, he's able to take out the terrorist and save her life. Yeah, and I don't know. I wanted to ask you this: Do you get do you get hung up on on her name? I always call her Anna uh, Riley, um, but yeah. it's actually pronounced really. So this is it's an interesting uh, thing. I when I was reading it, it, it sort of gave me hung me up a little bit. Well, so. In the audiobook, it was pronounced really, R-I-E-L-L-Y. And I even know that Kyle Mills in a lot of interviews has said it's something that always bugged him later on, wondering if this was a mistake or something about uh, Vince's writing style or perhaps his dyslexia, where he, he mixed up the letters, you know, because that's very common for people with that disability. And so Mills also said really versus Riley, R-E-I-L-Y, has always bugged him. And I, I think he even went back and forth and switched it to Riley every time he mentioned her later on in his books. So that's, that's an interesting tidbit. But yeah, I, I was hearing Riley, excuse me, I was hearing really as her name <laughs> in the audiobook. I know, it, it hung, hangs me up. Anyways, this scene is intense. It begins to show how rap can be effective when he thinks on his own and when he just doesn't, he even mentions it later on in the book, how he, you know, he needs just internally, he's like, I need to stop asking permission and just action. And in this case, he does. It saves Anna's life. In in this case, this is where this idea of compassion as weakness, where I think that because Mitch has, obviously has compassion for this person, it, it, it ultimately kind of does alter, you know, everything that goes further because killing this terrorist is going to, alert the other terrorists they're, they're eventually going to find it out and so it's it's that idea of where being compassionate to someone can sort of jeopardize the mission i, I think in the ultimate situation he, he made he made the right call but it does sort of jeopardize uh, you know his situation you're right with us seeing just how skilled and smart rap is to to make it look like anna killed this terrorist and escaped on her own that way Aziz wasn't tipped off that there's someone else in the building, especially someone with training. And, and we get this really intense scene where Aziz does come up once the body of the dead terrorist is found and Aziz 
and two other terrorists are now in the room and Rap is looking at them through the camera as his back to Rap's position. And Rap is ready to move. He, can, he, he knows he can end this whole thing. He says, three shots, three guys, the odds are good. Well, command, General Flood and the others are telling him the odds are no good. Uh, General Campbell, I believe, also says the odds aren't good enough to move. Let's not risk it. You know, and he stands down. And, you know, one thing we're going to talk about in the next episode more, but I just want to bring it up here, is this idea that Anna is a reporter and how that sort of plays in her and Mitch relationship. And it's it's actually a big part of their relationship, not only in this book, but but going forward in this sort of Vince's, it's Vince's way of foreshadowing by bringing this up now. He's able to foreshadow how this is going to be a constant uh, sort of dividing point between the two of them in, in, the, in the books to come. We now, we have both the president and Warch in the bunker and they realize that someone's drilling in and that someone is this little gift from a, a known bad guy in Saddam Hussein. And he's one of Aziz's guys who's slowly breaking into the bunker. At the same time, we have an attempt by two more SEALs to come into the building via duck work, that the same duck that Rap and Adams used. But at, it's, at this time, they, they don't successfully get in, and Aziz actually shoots both of them. It was kind of a, a brutal, gruesome scene. Yeah, and the whole idea is to figure out about the safe cracker and how much time they really have. And sadly, these, these two young seals, uh, well, one of them does get shot through the air duct, but it puts pressure on the situation for rap really to get moving and really get down into the bunker towards the bunker and see what's going on. And you mentioned Saddam Hussein is brought up, which is real interesting, you know, all throughout the nineties with the first desert storm operation. And how Saddam was still a major player in Middle East politics right now um, as both the head of state who, who, who ruled the country and his Ba'ath party, but then also was funding terrorists and also ruling through a dictatorship. And Kennedy's intelligence picks it up. They get a signal that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who funded this entire ordeal. And Nebuchadnezzar is the one who gave the money, but said the money has to go towards an attack on U.S. soil. And Nebuchadnezzar was indeed uh, one of the, the names that Saddam Hussein uh, often, often went by. And so Kennedy, is, is she's talking to the Israelis as well, and they're on to something, and they're intelligence sharing. However, the Israelis are concerned. The, pre the terrorists have already made one demand to give money to Iran. Their next demand, they rightfully deduct, is going to have to do with Israel and Palestine. And so the clock is not only ticking on the, cra the, the bunker and the safe being cracked and President Hayes being taken, but once President Hayes is taken, the terrorists have even more leverage to put more demands to the international community. And Kennedy wants to work closely with this general fine of, of the Israeli Defense Forces. And Israel is saying, if the terrorists make a demand to recognize Palestine as an independent state, it's not going to fly with us. And so now the U.S. has this added pressure to defuse the Israelis from ramping up. And if the president gets taken, the terrorists have some serious leverage to be able to demand uh, more aggressive strategies against Israel in, in the region. Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you, what did you think of Aziz's address to the nation? He's, he might know America and Americans better than we know ourselves. 
he understands our media and he understands our, our values and sensitivities. And so he goes right to the American public and says, look, I don't want to hurt anybody. My goal here is to free my people, which I'm sure you can understand as a country that fought for your own freedoms and stands up for human rights and basic values. Well, my, my people have been terrorized, crushed under the yoke of American imperialism. And so please understand that I am just a good guy at heart. And he's kind of playing off um, American sympathies and, and, and hoping that a lot of people will say, let's get the hostages back. And you know what? If we have to change our foreign policy towards the Middle East, let's change it. It was failing anyway. So I don't know, it's kind of he's, manip- he's very manipulative, very manipulative. And I think it was interesting how they showed or he talked about King immediately did a poll and showed that Americans were in favor of, of rescuing these hostages and in giving up some of these, you know, these demands. So the next we go into sort of the last little bit of the book here, the third act, the third act where we have. Rap, he verifies that the president's bunker is under siege with the help of really, you know, holding her down, down that tunnel. Um, he reports back to the CIA, but Baxter, he still, he doesn't want to order the invasion because he doesn't want to seem trick or happy, which again, it's just, you know, he's, he, this whole book, he's stumbling. And I really like that point. You said that if you could switch out him and the president from term limits, uh, Stevens, right. Um, is the same as that character. And so Stansfield, he's super frustrated with, with the vice president and his cowardice. And he gives Rap the permission, let Mitch be Mitch, to do whatever it takes to put the president back into communication with his advisors, reestablishing you know, a, a new transfer of power, reestablishing him as the commander in chief. He's able to do this, setting up a camera whenever the driller goes on a pee break. He's able to turn off the uh, scrambler so that way you know, they won't know anyone's there and Hayes is able to re- reestablish command with his advisors. Yeah, I thought I think that's going to be a real important point. What does the 25th Amendment say about the, quote, transfer of power? And I love how once Hayes is back on the radio, and by the way, it's thanks to Anna really being willing to put herself in this duct and hang out there and kind of feed intelligence of this safe cracker and if the bunker is guarded back to wrap. And so she really puts herself out there. And so once Rap can cut the jammer, reestablish communication with the president, does that give him the authority as commander in chief? And Hayes says, to regain authority, we must inform the president pro tem and the speaker of the house. And only then under section four of amendment 25, will I regain my authority? Will I, will the transfer of power be complete back to me and I can command the troops? And, you know, Stansfield and General Flood and General Campbell are like, I guess so, but they're also ready to make the move. They're like, we got the orders from the president. And so they make it clear, you're the commander in chief, you're our president, we're going to do it for you. And so it's kind of unique to have another politician who wants to do everything by the book, but thankfully he has advisors willing to say, we'll do it by the book, we'll write these letters for you. But for his generals to say, we're taking orders from you no matter what, we're doing it anyway. And that puts in puts in motion uh, a plan by the SEALs. And we see um, our boy uh, Wicker going out and setting up a sniper booth. He has everything ready to go. Every last detail, the type of wood they need, the size of the hole, which gun they're going to use, why they're going to have two people. And it's kind of cool. They go 
up the old post office tower, which uh, that was really cool. Yeah. He correctly writes is the second best viewing point of the city. Second to the Washington monument. It's a, it's a really tall tower on Pennsylvania Avenue. It's, it's kind of squat right between the white house and the Capitol building. And most notable right now, because it is the Trump hotel, (laughs) but before it was purchased, you know, I believe around 2015 or so before the, right before the election, it was the old post office pavilion. And you can go up there as part of a, I believe the national park service tour and uh, get a great view of the city from up there. Great spot. Wicker chooses to um, be the sniper to take out the terrorists on the roof. Right. And this is all going to be coordinated with the Navy seals who are going to perform a Hey Ho jump and land on the roof of the white house. We're now going to rush towards the ending of this book. Everything happens at once. And I guess it's supposed to signify this building of momentum and, and climax of, of action going on. But moments before the drill finishes and the president is nearly plucked from his bu- bunker, the soldiers, they invade, they kill the terrorists, they liberate the hostages, they evacuate the building before the bombs explode. In this whole situation, Aziz is able to get out because not only do they have a man on the outside who's set up as an EMT, he dresses up as a FBI agent and is able to escape through through the chaos and get into that uh, ambulance and drive away with his accomplice. And the president saved and everything is great. Like, what, So what did you think about that sort of the last, this build up, build up, build up, and then boom, it, it all happened. I mean, it was nice. It was cool, but I, I wanted it to be drawn out a little bit more. Yeah, I'm with you. Great scene. Awesome, meticulous planning. Every little detail Vince includes is great. But then it just stops. I I didn't like the cut scene where we knew the some of the bombs went off just in time as the hostages were taken out. So every everybody was mostly safe, but Rap saw the trip wires and the whole West, the Oval Office in the West Wing was wired till kingdom come. And it all blows. I would have liked a bit more of a description. What did the rooms look like? You know, what happened to, think of all the Roosevelt room. What did that look like? What did the, the Oval Office look like? What did, the, what did the rest of the quarters, what did the Lincoln bedroom look like? The smoldering ruins, or was most of the building still standing? We never really get right. a satisfying answer. It's this cut scene, and all we know is President Hayes is 100% fine. He, he's all right. He is in Blair house and I, I forget how long it was later, but enough for everybody to fully recover. And president Hayes is ready to give out his commendations, his, uh, his thank yous and IOUs to a number of people in the story and ass chewings and ass chewings if you deserve one. And I think Dallas King certainly deserves one. Yeah. He even gave a private tour to one of the terrorists and how they were able to case a bunch of information. Yeah. So, I mean, again, the terrorists playing off America's vulnerabilities is they found out Dallas King, the chief of staff of the vice president, is an NCAA fan. They found out what team he likes. And so they moved a guy into his neighborhood who he'd run into at the supermarket. He'd run into at the bar. And this terrorist became an expert on NCAA. And all of a sudden, he had a drinking buddy. And so one night, this random drinking buddy you've seen around town hey, can we do a tour of the White House? Something about, you know, impressing girls or whatever. And Dallas King, of course, being the playboy. I mean, every stereotype about a dumb American, just oblivious, is is Dallas King. And it plays right into yeah. the terrorist hands. I, I mean, it's just like the the TV show, The Americans. Yes, right? like, very much so. 
they move across the street from an FBI agent. They get all chummy and bring beers over. Their kids know each other. And oftentimes they're the ones. They're the ones who stab you in the back. While we're still in the Blair house with President Hayes thanking everybody, and he, he thinks of every single person. He even tells Anna that, hey, you can write this story. You're a journalist. I'm not going to censor you. I understand the First Amendment. But he says to her, this is just something that's way too important for all the little details to get out there. And so he artfully, you know, cuts her a deal and says, I'll give you the lead. What we're going to do to take out Aziz, I'll, you could be the first one to, to break that story, which will bolster her career. And she's smart enough to realize that that's a good deal. I will keep certain aspects of the prior days under wraps. I'll get an early lead on the story directly from the White House, and I'll be the first one to break that we caught the terrorist responsible for these attacks. And guess who's going to be sent to do that? Our boy, Mitch Rapp. Iron Man. So the epilogue puts Rapp in Brazil in an ethnic neighborhood known for having a lot of, or almost a million, Palestinian, Lebanese, Iranian, and Arab immigrants. And it's in the city that they have satellite photography through the CIA that a high-value target, Mr. Rafiq Aziz, is hiding out. What did you think about the, the ending scene there and, and finishing off Rafiq Aziz? He's, you know, he's been a rival of him for, for a little bit. I mean, it's pretty impressive. We see Rap take out, take out a whole room, three tangos down, he says. Uh, he's moving up to the second floor. And, of course, uh, there's Aziz in bed, right, of course, with a prostitute. Two bullets slam into his elbow. So again, just rap. He wants his time. He wants Aziz to know who he is. He's not going to shoot him straight in the forehead. He yanks the woman off the bed, tells her to get out of here. And um, he asks Aziz, you remember me? <laughs> Aziz remembers who it was. His face froze. He searched his memory. And rap says, four tangos down. Squeeze the trigger one more time. Boom. What a great book. Well, next episode, you are going to hear our final review on the book. We will even be talking about which our favorite covers are. So if you haven't seen on Twitter, give us your vote. Which Transfer of Power cover is your favorite? And we have a number of thematic and, quite honestly, moral questions about the book that we'll be getting into. Yeah, and so please always subscribe, rate, and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at MitchRapPod.com or using our Twitter handle at MitchRapPod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Guys, we, we're just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters. This podcast is not officially affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.